A conclusion to the Great Malaysian Chicken Crisis, executions in Myanmar, and a flurry of diplomatic activity in the region. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Simon Tranhutis. Today is August 4th, 2022. On today's show... People are already talking about the possibility of another military coup. It's a rumor. I mean, everything in Thailand is, is based on rumors because nobody knows anything for sure. That was Pongkwan Soastapakdi, who chatted with Greg Poling about the recent Bangkok governor's race and what that might portend for Thailand's general election next year. I'm really excited for that interview, and we are so glad you get to join us as well. First, though, the headlines. All right, today to help me read the headlines, we have Jafet Kitson in the studio. Jafet is the program coordinator and research assistant for CSIS's Shoal Chair in International Business, and also, fun fact, a former intern for our very own Southeast Asia program. Welcome, Jafet. Thank you, Simon. It's so great to finally be here. Yeah, we're really happy to have you in. Now, before we begin this week's Southeast Asia news segment, we just wanted to quickly pay our respects to the passing of former Philippine President Fidel V. Ramos, who passed away over the weekend. Ramos was a complicated and consequential figure. Jafet, why don't we turn it over to you? Thanks, Simon. So before his beginnings in politics, Ramos was a career military official. He graduated from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, served in the Korean War alongside American troops, and commanded a Philippine contingent during the Vietnam War. Ramos led the Philippine military under President Ferdinand Marcos Sr., the longtime dictator of the Philippines and father of the current president, Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr. In that role, Ramos helped the elder Marcos implement martial law in 1972, resulting in the killing of thousands of Filipinos and thousands more arbitrarily imprisoned and tortured. Years later, though, Ramos defected from Marcos's government and as head of the National Police Force played a key role in bringing down the dictator during the 1986 Democratic People Power Movement. When Corazon Coriaquino rose to the presidency, Ramos became the military chief of staff and later defense secretary, where he defended her, no exaggeration here, from half a dozen coup attempts. Oh my gosh. He then succeeded Coriaquino to become the 12th president of the Philippines in 1992. As president, he presided over robust economic growth, exceptional political stability, and reconciliations with communist insurgents and Muslim separatists. He passed on July 31st at the age of 94. Thank you very much, Jeff, for that. Moving on to our news headlines in Southeast Asia, backed by popular demand, the conclusion of a trilogy, we have Malaysia's chicken crisis back in the news. Hooray! What's the Malaysian chicken crisis? <laughs> I'm glad you asked, Jaffet. So for the uninitiated, in June, the Malaysian government banned the export of chicken in an effort to secure domestic supply and rein in rising food prices caused by the global food shortage that was the result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But just this week... Malaysia's Minister of Agriculture and Food Industries, Ronald Giandi, confirmed that apparently Malaysia now has an oversupply of chicken. This means that Malaysia can now resume its export of chickens to other countries. And this is especially welcome news in, in Malaysia's next door neighbor, Singapore, of course, which has gone without fresh chicken for their national dish, chicken rice, for too long. Thank goodness. Yeah, and I'm glad we got in one light story this week because in unfortunately more serious news, Myanmar's junta executed four pro-democracy activists last week. Jaffa, what can you tell us about what happened here? Right, Simon. This is a truly tragic story with big international consequences. 
The military junta in Myanmar, which took over after a February 2021 coup, executed four citizens. Ko Jimmy, a longtime pro-democracy activist, Pyo Zeyatao, a lawmaker deposed in the coup who was also a popular hip-hop artist, along with two others, Liao Myo Ang and Ong Thura Zhao, who we unfortunately don't know much about. The trials and executions of these four activists were done behind closed doors, without notifying the public or even the families of the accused about the trial or execution dates. Wow. Only after they were executed in secret did the families find out. The activists were apparently charged under counterterrorism laws, but this was clearly done without much regard for due process. This earned the ire of the international community. UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in Myanmar, Tom Andrews, said that these depraved acts must be a turning point for the international community. Malaysian Foreign Minister Saifuddin Abdullah described it as a crime against humanity. Even Cambodia, this year's ASEAN chair, condemned the executions in unusually strong language after the junta ignored a personal appeal by Cambodia's own authoritarian leader Hun Sen. This is just the latest example of how the Myanmar junta has broken the five-point consensus, an early peace plan crafted by ASEAN in the wake of the coup that even Myanmar initially agreed to. With the junta now losing ground in the deadly multi-front civil war that sprang up in the wake of the coup, the junta appears to have isolated itself even further. Very sad news indeed. Uh, Meanwhile, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is currently in Cambodia for a number of events connected to the ASEAN foreign ministers' meeting including the U.S. ASEAN Ministerial Meeting, the East Asia Summit, um, which is a foreign minister's meeting, and the ASEAN Regional Forum. According to the U.S. State Department, Blinken will use these opportunities to, quote, emphasize the United States' commitment to ASEAN centrality. Uh, Blinken is also expected to address the COVID-19 pandemic, climate change, Russia's war on Ukraine, and the crisis in Myanmar. In the meantime, Blinken is also expected to hold sideline meetings with Cambodian Prime Minister Hun Sen and Foreign Minister Prak Sokhon to discuss strengthening U.S.-Cambodia relations. Relations between Washington and Phnom Penh have been in dire straits for quite some time, an observation you outline in your recent white paper, Pariah or Partner, clarifying the U.S. approach to Cambodia, which I'll note is available on the CSIS website for those who are interested in reading the full report. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Thank you for the shout out, Jaffet. Um, so after Cambodian, I believe Blinken is set to travel to the Philippines where he will meet with President Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr. and his foreign secretary Enrique Manalo to discuss the U.S.-Philippine alliance and increase cooperation on a range of issues, including energy trade and investment. In related diplomatic news, U.S. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi is on tour. Wow. Yeah, she was in Singapore on Monday, where she met with Prime Minister Li Shen Lung, and touched down briefly in Malaysia, where she met with Ismail Sabri Yaakob. She'll also stop through Japan and South Korea. On the agenda is COVID-19, climate change, and regional security issues. After Malaysia, Pelosi stopped in Taiwan, which caused some controversy that we'll let the China teams cover. (laughs) Okay, that sounds good. Uh, We'll stay in our lane. So uh, last up, Indonesia and the United States this week began a joint military exercise being dubbed Super Garuda Shield. The Garuda Shield exercise lasts for two weeks, but this iteration has earned the super moniker because this will, in fact, be the biggest one yet, with at least 4,000 Indonesian and U.S. troops to be joined by forces from Australia, Singapore, and surprisingly, a little bit, Japan, which is participating in the exercise for the first time. Right. And while military officials from all participating countries have emphasized that this isn't meant to be pointed at any particular party... 
The increased size certainly makes you wonder about how these regional powers are thinking about security threats in the region. Yep, certainly making me think about it. So that was a very busy week. Yeah, and lots to come back in. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Those are the headlines. Thank you, Jafet, so much for stopping by. Glad to be here. Up next, Greg interviews Pongkwan Sawastipakti about the Thai electoral politics and the political atmosphere. So stay tuned. Hey folks, welcome back for another conversation on Southeast Asia Radio. I am afraid to say that for two weeks in a row now, my uh, co-host and compatriot Alina Noor isn't able to join us because she's traveling in the region and we just couldn't make schedule sync up, but that's okay. Uh, we'll welcome her back soon. In the meantime, I'm being joined by Pongkwan Savastipakti, uh, a, a longtime friend of the CSIS Southeast Asia program, currently a lecturer at Thammasat University in Thailand and a PhD candidate at the University of Southern California. PK, thanks so much for coming on. Of course, of course. Thanks for inviting. Now, I'm going to pretend that you've listened to all the Southeast Asia radio episodes, so you already know this. Uh, But we've talked about most of the region so far, and the glaring exception is probably Thailand. And maybe that's reflective of the way that the U.S. has thought about and treated Thailand for a few years now, at least since the, the 2014 coup. But we're overdue. Uh, And we've had a couple of of big developments, both in domestic politics in Thailand and in the U.S.-Thai alliance. So I need somebody to help catch us up. And and I guess I should give a little background for some of our listeners who maybe aren't Thai hands. But as a reminder, Thailand is a U.S. ally, even though it doesn't have a formal treaty alliance. Um, We've got kind of a whole lot of gentlemen's agreements over the decades that has made Thailand the fifth U.S. ally in the region. And yet since the last military coup, and those who know Thai politics knows that there have been quite a few, the last coup eight years ago, the alliance has really been on the rocks. We've been in a rebuilding phase for the last few years, but I think we really hadn't turned the corner on normalizing the alliance until just the last year. But before we get to the alliance, let's talk about politics. Prime Minister Prayut Chan-o-Cha is still in power, despite having a somewhat weakened position. Why don't you tell us a little bit about where Prayut and his Palang Prachirat party stand and what the recent Bangkok governor's race maybe tells us about the the near future of Thai politics? Oh, difficult question. Well, that's why we brought you on. So many things to unpack here, right? First of all, um, Prayut is still in power and money politics in the parliament right there. There are a lot of issues of, in Thailand, they call it giving bananas, buying politicians to be on one side or the other side. There are a lot of these giving bananas events going on in the parliament, even during the no confidence vote uh, that we had last week. And all of the ministers on the cabinet all passed the no confidence vote. So they get to stay in power. That indicated that they're still pretty strong, probably not popular, but still strong on the parliament. They have enough money to buy off all of these politicians in the parliament. So there is that. Technically, the election will have to happen next year because Prayut will be the prime minister for, for, you know, the term has ended. And there's a question of whether Prayut can run for another term because he meets his two four-year terms already. So maybe they will come up with a new candidate, but there's also the interpretation of the constitution. Does that start with the election or do we count back when he came into power with the military coup? So that's another problem. So if it's the latter, 
he will have another opportunity to run for the prime minister one more time. So we don't know about that yet. There seems to be a, a conversation going on as to how we calculate the party list proportion in the parliament, which they switch back and forth between two systems of calculation, and we're still uncertain which one we are going forward with. The current one that they agreed on right now is going to benefit smaller parties. The other one that Palang Prashara, the military party, is talking about bringing back is the one that will favor bigger parties. So that is still in the state of uncertainty. They voted on it before in the parliament earlier this month, and they agreed upon the one that will favor smaller parties. But now Palang Prashara seems to want to go with the one that favor bigger parties. So we still don't know about that. But anyway, election will happen next year, hopefully after APEC, because Prayut and Prewit, the two strong men here, want to be part of APEC and they want to showcase Thailand that they can host something internationally. So I, I know I gave you a lot there in the first one. So we'll get we'll get back to the recent developments in the Bangkok governor's race. But so as as a reminder of folks, Prayut came to power uh, in after the 2014 coup. The military junta engineered a new constitution with the goal of making it impossible for Thai, the opposition party, uh, which had won every election for the last 20 plus years when there have been elections to win power. And then in 2019, engineered a let's call it nominally free, but not exactly fair election in which Prayut did win the most votes that were counted. And so has been, you know, that has allowed the U.S. and other allies and partners to rehabilitate the relationship with Thailand after after five bumpy years. One of the reasons, I, I, I guess, that Pauline Pratchett has remained so strong and Prayut's managed to dodge these no-confidence motions, even though he's relatively unpopular, is that folks who were fed up with both the military and the Puatai opposition had largely swung behind the new party uh, Future Forward, which was set up by, by a Thai billionaire and did quite well, surprisingly well, in the 2019 elections. And then surprise, surprise, was disbanded. So with anger still riding high and people frustrated with Prayutna's leadership, if there is an election next year, where do votes go? If there's only minor parties and then these two big juggernauts that people don't really like left standing? I think votes would probably go to Palang Prasharat, Thai, and Forward Party. So these are still three main parties we're talking about here. Pumjai Thai probably two in the lower Isan area, the so northeastern area. They seems to be pretty strong there. I think there's still some votes going for Palang Prasharat. Those people who uh, who seem to to like Prayut's effort to stabilize the countries and, you know, hate all the the democracy movement that we had two years ago and still going on now. So those people will go with Plan Prasharat. The Democrat Party is probably not part of the game anymore, although they might get few seats in the South. Now they don't have any MPs in Bangkok at all. So that seems to be indicative of how they perform in the politics now, with the opposition, there will be a, quite a bit of factions between those who vote for Puyathai and those who vote for Forward Party. In terms of the parties themselves, although they still criticize each other all the time, there seems to be an agreement that they will work together as a coalition post-election. So Taksin has come out and say the pro-democracy 
people, like you go and vote for any of these two parties, because at the end of the day, they will end up being coalition in the government or the opposition anyway. However, in terms of the supporters, the supporters do not quite get along. I would say that, and and I'm judging from social media sentiments and talking to people. There seems to be some agreement there at a level that they need to cooperate, but there are a lot of fighting going on, criticism going on of whether Puyatai Party is better or Forward Party is better on social media. That's quite interesting. I don't know if that's going to impact the ability for these two parties to cooperate. As far as I see, no. But this faction seems to be something that the government or the military party can take advantage of. So traditionally, or I guess put it better, that for the last quarter century, Thai politics is basically broken down regionally in which Puatai, the, the party of, of former prime minister and, and billionaire Thaksin Shinawat, who's been living in exile for, for what almost two decades now, was able to win the North and the Northeast, largely on populist platforms, supportive of largely disenfranchised rural voters. And that's been quite popular. And then the more well-to-do residents of Bangkok and metropolitan Bangkok, as well as votes in the South, swung to the Democrats, which, as you said, have now been utterly destroyed as a, as a functioning political party, even though they're the oldest party in the country. And Palang Pracharat, Prayut's party, largely cannibalized the, the Democrat vote. And then in 2019, what we saw was this new force, future forward, of kind of people who were fed up with the Democrats and fed up with Palang Pracharat, but weren't on board with toxinism, and largely young cosmopolitans swinging toward future forward. And then future forward's leader was, was disbanded from politics. And so this brings us to the Bangkok governor's race. We just had this, this Bangkok governor's race in which a new governor is elected, former Puatai, now running self-consciously as an independent to separate himself from Puatai, and did what Future Forward couldn't, which was actually win every constituency in Bangkok, right? I mean, totally blew out Palang Pracharat. So if, one, tell me about him, and then two, tell me, does this mean that Palang Pracharat's toast? If they've lost Bangkok, have they lost a, a national election? There are two factors that could impact why uh, the current governor of Bangkok won the election. First of all, he was already quite a popular figure in Thailand, even before the election, because he was the Minister of Transportation under the Yingluck administration. And his picture of him being too, so down to earth became so viral. And therefore, the younger generations got to know him like he's so popular on social media platforms. And he has prepared himself for the election for two years. So people know that he was going to run. It was not a, a new phenomenon or anything. He got time to develop his policy. So that is one factor that impact uh, the election. The second one would be people got fed up with the military government or the old governor of Bangkok, who is also part of that regime. So there are two going on factors that I don't know which one is more powerful. It could be that because Chachat is such a powerful figure, people tend to go with him because he's a better candidate. So if that's the case, then it actually doesn't say much about the national election because maybe other candidates who are not as strong as him might not be able to win over those people who give money or buy votes. And by the fact that 
the Palang Prasharat has been in power for quite a long time, there has been some policy that benefit people in the rural area. Projects that they invested in the locals and different villages and stuff like that. So it seems like these projects are able to swing the votes on the part of Palang Prasharat as well. So outside of Bangkok, where people get benefits from Palang Prasharat's and government's schemes, if there's no better candidate, they might want to go with Palang Prasharat. So we don't know that yet. People seem to fed up. But things that we hear on social media and internet are actually reflective of people who can get access to internet, right? So middle-class people in Bangkok and probably the red shirt base that's so very strong, but we don't really know about people who are not part of red shirt and who are not part of the social media movement. And those are question mark right there that people try to understand which side they want to go with in the national election. This system, even if uh, next year in the election, a coalition of, say, Putai and, and Future Forward, maybe some other smaller parties, does manage to win, to cobble together a majority that can govern, they still have to operate under this 2019 constitution put in place by the military and the palace to ensure that that wouldn't be good enough. You have an appointed uh, Senate, largely appointed upper house which can help appoint the prime minister regardless of who actually wins a majority. And so you could just end up with divided government, right? And, and and the system was put in place by the military after the 2014 coup on the assumption that this would secure them power indefinitely. If it's already falling apart, does that just lead to gridlock and a, a, a government that can't govern? It doesn't have to be so. Um, so for example, if Puatai and the Future Forward Party cooperate and became, you know, Puatai is now running for a landslide victory, right? So that, that's one of their campaigns. So if they do overwhelmingly won the election and probably bring in one or two smaller parties, doesn't have to be a grid lock though, because I don't think Puatai or Future Forward will swing to the other side, right? So they are hardcore, well, I wouldn't say pro-democracy. I mean, they're more pro-democracy than military as well, but very hardcore pro-democracy parties. If these two parties can't win overwhelmingly and they become a government based on cooperation or, or coalition with other smaller parties, that might become a gridlock. We might have a situation with smaller, weaker government that is prone to, you know, negotiation and buying off going on in the parliament. So we don't know that we might find another situation with the opposition, which in this case might be Palang Pracharat, who can buy off some of the politicians from smaller parties and win the election despite them not getting the most votes in the national election, which basically was the situation that happened in 2017. If Puatai did win a landslide, which seems unlikely, but if, if anybody has an outright majority, don't they still have to govern with the sword of Damocles hanging over their head? Because they now operate in a system chock full of circuit breakers inserted by the military, the upper house, the judiciary, and ultimately, you know, <laughs> the potential of military intervention under, under national security laws. So... I don't I don't want to be too provocative, but it certainly feels like a government that actually tried to govern based on popular will 
And if that was their only concern, they would be spelling their own doom. I agree with you. It's going to be hard and also related to earlier question about the gridlock. If the current opposition doesn't get enough votes, then definitely weak government gridlock. And people are already talking about the possibility of another military coup. It's a rumor. I mean, everything in Thailand is, is based on rumors because nobody knows anything for sure. There's already a discussion that if the opposition wins, then we might face another military coup. And even if we don't have military coup, they still have 20-year development plan. And if the government doesn't follow the 20-year development plan, they will be subject to investigation, for example. So there's a lot of things that burden the next government for sure. So they can't run the policies as freely as they thought. So it's going to be a big burden together with big debt that we accumulated in the past few years. It's going to be challenging for the opposition as well. So we're going to have a situation where the opposition, whether strong or weak, is constrained by many of these mechanisms that are put in place in the constitution. And together with the downturn economy in the countries, we're going to see a government that probably doesn't perform as well as we would expect because of these constraints. I think there's probably going to be some nasty political games going on for sure, I think. So that will divide attention from the attempt to run policies to either fix the economy or benefit the people. So I think that's probably the scenario we are going to see after the election, unfortunately. Right. And and politics, I mean, this would be, God, uh, what's the count now, 19 if there were another coup? I, mean, I think, I think we've, we're at 18, right? It, it depends on what you count, I guess. But the politics in Thailand is historically cyclical for the last century. And so it certainly feels like now the wheel is is turning, whether or not it's turning back to a return to civilian, to real civilian rule, or the precursor to further non-democratic intervention, I guess is is depends on whether or not you see the glass is half half empty or half full. But but let's um let's close on on a quick discussion of of what this means for the U.S. Thai alliance. So as I said uh, at the top, you know the U.S. has has largely I mean it's continued all the normal day-to-day interactions, law enforcement and military, the exercises and all of that. And of course, the business ties that have made Thailand so important to the U.S. and Southeast Asia. But the high-level attention has been at a distance because of, of anger and, and perceived reputational costs since 2014 and so on. That started to change. So clearly, this administration, the Biden administration, sees uh, a refocus on Thailand as important to their larger Indo-Pacific strategy. Secretary Blinken tried to go to Thailand early in the year, had to put it off because somebody on his plane caught COVID. So he just went early this month, met with uh, Foreign Minister Don and, and signed two agreements on supply chain resiliency and on, what did they call it, expanding strategic cooperation in the alliance, whatever that means. And then after the Shangri-La dialogue, Secretary Austin made it a point to make Thailand his, he had time for one trip after Shangri-La and he made it to Thailand. So clearly the U.S., is very optimistic right now about about Thailand, um, about the alliance. Do you think that sentiment is shared on the Thai side right now? Depending on which side you are with, right, in terms of ideology, there seems to be a great division on whether we should cooperate more with the U.S. or whether we should cooperate more with China. It seems to be that division where political elites right now seem to be more with China and the bureaucrats 
are more with the U.S. and in terms of the mask, it depends on where you stand. If you like the current government, you seem to go with China, and if you don't like the current government, you seem to support the U.S. and Thai alliance. But I'll note, Prayut seemed very, very happy that he got to come to Washington for the U.S. ASEAN summit. He finally got the invite to Washington earlier this year. So has that is that what kicked the door open for closer cooperation with the current Thai government? Most of these things are symbolic, and Thai governments like symbolic stuff. It's good to be liked by both China and the U.S. And the fact that the relationship between the U.S. and Thailand has been stalled in the past few years because of the coup in 2014, I have a feeling that the government would feel good to be open back into this close relationship with the U.S. again. That doesn't mean it's going to translate into any policy, though. There's quite a separation between tangible policy and symbolic relationship. And Thailand has done pretty good job with symbolic relationships. We want to be good friends to everyone, and the fact that they get the shake hands and stuff like that—it's already indicative of that. But when it comes to real, the real policy, it's influenced a lot by different things. It's also business tycoons, army-to-army relationship, and personal relationship of people at the top of the government, and also the monarchy, royal family as well. Right, so there are more factors than people who are actually operating at the top of the government. CP, for example, business tycoon in Thailand who is very close to China. We have a really close army to army relationship, which doesn't require much transparency, right? So we don't really know, like arms deal and stuff like that. Versus dealing with the U.S. is harder because there needs to be transparency in what you buy and how much you buy it and stuff like that. There seems to be more difficulties in terms of. In their eyes to deal with the U.S., there's more requirements in terms of the value and transparency. Things seems to get done quite more slowly than they can have a deal with the Chinese counterpart. So Thailand likes to have a relationship with the U.S. I don't know if, in fact, that means the U.S. has been successfully reaching out and getting Thailand back into the alliance. Thailand likes to play both bamboo diplomacy. Has always been the core of the Thai foreign policy. We would like to be friends with everyone. We'll go with the flow. When we see which side is winning, we're gonna swing with them. So symbolic stuff doesn't is not indicative of any tangible policies in them. That's something that I'm quite concerned about the alliance. Right. There is a whole lot we could say about whether or not bamboo diplomacy can actually work in an era of great power competition in Asia, but we don't have time. So we'll save that for the next conversation about Thailand. For now, PK, thank you so much. Thank you all for listening. As usual, I'm Greg Poling, and Pongkwan Sawastapakti was my uh, stand-in coordinator, co-host, co-conspirator for this episode. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye, everybody. All right. Thank you again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csis.org. Again, that's searadio at csis.org. I promise we read and we will be sure to answer any questions you might have. 
We're still a very new podcast, so do us a favor and subscribe. Give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us. Laurel Vibaton is our producer. Our intern is Nikki Arcado. Our host today was Greg Poling. My name is Simon Tranhudis. And I'm Jaffet Kitsan. And we will see you in a couple weeks for the next episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Thanks, all. Thanks, all.